Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this lecture, the honorary president of the Child Poverty Action Group, Baroness Ruth Lister, gives a unique insight into poverty research in the UK. I'm Glynis Breakwell. I'm the vice chancellor of the university. For those of you who don't already know me, um, I'd like to welcome you to the University of Bath and to this evening's lecture in our series, Research in the World. We started this series of open lectures three years ago now. As the title implies, the aim is to explore the many ways in which research has a wider impact in the world outside of academia. At the University of Bath, we believe that this is an important function of research. Research can and should benefit our wider society, economy, culture and people, nationally and internationally. We therefore not only seek to promote scientific excellence, but also to use research to address important topics in the world today. Our speaker tonight, Baroness Professor Ruth Lister, CBE, certainly exemplifies these values. Baroness Lister is the UK's leading authority on poverty. She has published widely on poverty and social exclusion, welfare state reform, gender and citizenship. Her books on citizenship and poverty are required reading, not just for students, but for anyone with serious interest in these important topics. Ruth writes and speaks on poverty with unique authority, not least because of the different roles that she has played. She's a former director of the Child Poverty Action Group, a professor of social policy at Loughborough University, and now a Labour peer. She has been at the centre of all of the key debates on poverty and policy in recent years, including membership of the Commission on Social Justice, the Fabian Commission on Life Chances and Child Poverty, and the National Equality Panel. Her influence and authority is profound. Ruth's research has a strong resonance with our own work here at Bath. As many of you will know, the university has recently been awarded the prestigious Queen's Award for Higher Education in recognition of our, to quote, influential applied research into child poverty and support for vulnerable families. In fact, Ruth was very helpful to colleagues as part of that process and I am pleased to have this opportunity to thank her for that. The lecture this evening will reflect on the changing nature of poverty research, policy and politics and the relationship between them. I am very much looking forward to this, as I'm sure you are. I would therefore like to invite Baroness Lister to present her lecture from both sides now, Reflections on Poverty, Research and Politics. Thank you. Thank you for those very kind words, Vice-Chancellor. Uh, I was just saying earlier that I have to stop myself starting when I speak now, saying my noble lords, which is how we have to uh, start anything we say in the lords. But Vice-Chancellor, 
colleagues and friends, uh, thank you for the invitation and congratulations on your achievement in being awarded one of this year's Queen's Anniversary Prizes for Higher Education, as you said, for pioneering and influential research on child poverty and support for vulnerable people. It was richly deserved. I'm only sorry I can't attend the forthcoming conference to mark the award, but perhaps I can provide the warm-up act. What I hope to do in this lecture is reflect um, on developments in uh, poverty research and ways in which it has and hasn't influenced uh, anti-poverty policymaking and politics. And I will start with the impact of the most influential post-war poverty researcher, Peter Townsend, and then discuss a number of developments in poverty research, some of which researchers at Bath helped to pioneer. I'll finish with some thoughts on why governments are so often resistant to research findings, despite a supposed commitment to evidence-based policymaking, uh, and by putting poverty research in the context of inequality. The both sides in the title refer to my own changing relationship to poverty research during the course of my career, as the Vice-Chancellor has referred to, from working for a pressure group, the Child Poverty Action Group, in the 1970s and 80s, to being an academic, to now a parliamentarian. Although in each of these roles, I have at times been both researcher and research user, so the two sides are not always that distinct. Those of you of a certain age will recognise that the title is also borrowed from a 1960s Joni Mitchell song, and it is the 60s where I want to start. I realise that for younger members of the, younger members of the audience, uh, we're talking about history here, but history can be instructive in thinking about the present. Peter Townsend was described on his death in 2009 as one of the global giants of social science and a leading campaigner for social justice, whose work had transformed the landscapes of both the scientific and policy debates on poverty. He did so in particular through his articulation of a relative conceptualization of poverty and through the publication in 1965 with Brian Abel Smith of a study called The Poor and the Poorest. This was generally seen as triggering the rediscovery of child and family poverty in the UK after years when the consensus view was that it had effectively been abolished. It's difficult to think of any other single piece of research which has had more political impact in this field. According to a leading political scientist, it set out to reshape policymakers' interpretation of their environment and it succeeded in doing that by putting child poverty firmly on the political agenda of the Labour government of the day. The research was also instrumental in the establishment of the Child Poverty Action Group. Townsend, one of the co-founders, subsequently wrote that the group was formed in the crucible of outrage, particularly by Quakers and social, science, social workers with first-hand acquaintance with poverty and by social scientists whose research demonstrated comprehensively that the phenomenon was as unnecessary as it was widespread. CPAG used the findings of the poor and the poorest to put pressure on the government. And a study of the poverty lobby observed that it was highly successful and had an immediate effect on politicians and civil servants. 
academic research and the CPAG campaign had done more than simply prick the conscience of the Labour Party. It had put the issue of poverty back on the political agenda and stimulated a public debate. And we see here how a pressure group such as CPAG was able to act as a mediating institution using academic research on poverty to give weight to its campaigning work. Since then, the number of voluntary organisations campaigning on child poverty has grown significantly and now includes charities which previously simply provided services, but during the 1980s realised that this was not enough and that without trying to achieve change, they were only administering sticking plasters. Some of these charities are now important commissioners as well as users of research. And in a recent volume inspired by Townsend's work, Jonathan Bradshaw observes that not only had he rediscovered poverty before he was 40, he had reconceptualized poverty as relative before he was 30. And this more sociological contribution was enormous, framing most subsequent social scientific work on the subject, and also how governments and the European Union have defined and measured poverty. It was rooted in an understanding that poverty can only be understood in the context of the society and era in which it is experienced, and that even the most basic needs cannot be divorced from their social and cultural context. Winding forward, it's interesting to note that in opposition, David Cameron stated firmly that we need to think of poverty in relative terms. The fact that some people lack those things which others in society take for granted. So I want this message to go out loud and clear. The Conservative Party recognises, will measure and will act on relative poverty. And he explicitly rejected the stance taken by a former Conservative cabinet minister who in 1989 dismissed the idea of relative poverty as simply inequality espoused by the left in order to discredit capitalism. It's therefore disappointing that recently Cameron dismissed the increase in child poverty due to uh, cuts in, in tax credits as a mere statistical quirk caused by the illogical fact that it was measured relative to average income rather than on an absolute basis. When I tried to ask a question about this in the House of Lords, I was palmed off with an answer that bore no relationship to the question, a not unusual experience I've discovered to my frustration. Despite the otherwise um, widespread acceptance of a relative conceptualization of poverty among analysts and politicians, it should be noticed, noted that it's had rather less impact on public understandings of poverty. The British Social Attitudes Survey indicates that only about a fifth of the population subscribes to a relative definition. And research into how people in poverty themselves talk about poverty by Jan Flaherty, a former PhD student of mine, suggests that few people in poverty themselves see poverty in relative terms. She writes, for respondents in the study, talk about poverty was to discuss a phenomenon that was seen as having more to do with comic relief and famine news reports than with their day-to-day -day life. Other research suggests that this in part reflects a reluctance to identify with what is still a stigmatizing label and also a desire to be seen as ordinary. Now the general population's more absolutist view of poverty 
helps to explain why today official child poverty statistics no longer have the power to shock that they did at the time of the poor and the poorest. Research carried out for the Fabian Commission on Life Chances and Child Poverty, of which I was a member, indicated a degree of scepticism towards the official poverty statistics. It seemed that people didn't believe that they measured real poverty, whereas they were moved by evidence of severe hardship and deprivation. Annual income statistics are important in holding governments to account as they allow us to measure trends over time and to make comparisons with those countries where levels of poverty are much lower than in the UK. And we can therefore make the argument that such high levels of poverty, in particular child poverty, are not inevitable. But they do not appear to create a political constituency for change among the general population and have lost the power to shock that they had back in the 1960s. And this has led the authors of a recent report on child poverty to argue that while the notion of poverty remains a vital part of the analysis, it can be unhelpful in framing the solutions. It separates out children in poverty as different or other, as I put it in my book on poverty, rather than identifying risks against which most families would want to be protected. They therefore suggest framing the debate around the notion of decent childhoods so as to convey a vision of what, of what a childhood free from poverty might look like. Of course, the evidence on poverty isn't confined to official statistics. And I want to turn now to consider some key developments in poverty research since Townsend's pioneering work in the 60s and 70s. And I'll start with research which, unlike the official statistics, that base their estimates of the number of individuals living in poverty on a household count, examines how poverty is experienced by individuals, in particular women and children, within households. In the 1980s, there was a developing feminist critique, to which Jane Miller contributed, uh, of traditional approaches to conceptualising and researching poverty, which ignored the ways in which poverty is a gendered phenomenon with women at greater risk of poverty and bearing much of the burden as the main managers of poverty. An important milestone was a study of what happens to money within family, families by Jan Paul. This and subsequent work revealed the hidden poverty that can exist within families when resources are not shared fairly. This was the background to a small piece of qualitative research that I carried out with Jackie Good and Claire Callender. Unlike the previous research, our study focused exclusively on low-income families in receipt of some kind of social security benefit or family credit, the support then provided to low-paid workers with children. We interviewed both partners in 31 couples. At CPAG, I'd been involved in a successful campaign to prevent the then Conservative government from paying family credit through the wage packet, uh, so that instead it went direct to the caring parent, usually still the mother. At a Social Policy Association conference a few years ago, David Willits tried to claim that it was research evidence that persuaded his government to pay family credit to the caring parent, when in fact they were caught in a political pincer movement, as he then conceded. Of course, it was partly the research which underlined the importance of paying money 
uh, for children to the mother, still typically the caring parent, that enabled CPAG to rally some of the opposition to the proposal in the first place. Now, because of fears that the Conservatives might renege on this if re-elected, one of the topics we explored was how families used family credit and what they thought of the idea of paying it through the wage packet. In the event, New Labour, who had just come to power, proposed to pay their new working family tax credit, which replaced family credit through the pay packet. And our research provided valuable ammunition for those campaigning against this, in particular the Women's Budget Group, group of feminist academics and others. Um, and I, it helped to counter the, the government response that such what are called purse-wallet arguments were now outdated. The result was a compromise by which parents could choose who received the credit, and eventually it was decided to split the credit into two, with payment of a new child tax credit to the caring parent and a working tax credit through the pay packet. And two lessons I drew from an Academy of Social Sciences pamphlet on the impact of the social sciences were that the impact will depend on the political context and on how research is used by a range of political players. Even where research is not used to formulate policy, it can provide ammunition in political debate, including when the findings are initially resisted by the government of the day. But it was also a case of lucky timing that we completed the research just at the point the government was making its proposals. Unfortunately, the Welfare Reform Act, which recently completed a rather difficult passage through Parliament, in effect reverses what we won, and will pay the whole of the new universal credit, including the elements of children, into a single bank account. Our attempts to prevent this in the House of Lords came to nothing, and the more recent research evidence that we cited, provided by the Women's Budget Group, was ignored. And I'll say a bit more about the implications of this later. The most influential message from the research on what happens within families is that money for children is more likely to be spent on the children if paid direct to the parent who takes the main day-to-day -day responsibility for their care, as I said, usually still the mother. What the research also tends to show is that parents, and in particular mothers, often go without in order to shield their children from the worst effects of poverty. This was also the finding of an influential study into child poverty carried out by colleagues of mine at the Centre for um, Research in Social Policy at Loughborough, and it looked at what parents spent, their children, uh, spent on their children and developed a new measure of childhood poverty based on items and activities that the majority of parents believed to be necessary. It showed how significant numbers of children went without these necessities because their parents could not afford them. The study was funded by the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, which is one of the most important sources of funding for poverty research in the UK, at a time when the issue of child poverty was simply not on the policy agenda. Among other things, it revealed the inadequacy of the income support, basic uh, social security rates for younger children, relative to those paid for older children. And we know that this research influenced Gordon Brown's early decision as Chancellor to raise those rates in real terms and to double them in real terms during Labour's period in office. Interestingly, though, many people are unaware of this as the government was unusually modest about this achievement, which formed part of its strategy of redistribution by stealth. 
Now, one of the most pioneering and influential pieces of research into poverty carried out here at Bath was Tess Ridge's study, which taught directly to children, whereas traditionally research about child poverty had either been quantitative, i.e. just numbers, or, if qualitative, had mainly taught to parents about children. This research provided considerable insight into how children themselves experience poverty, and in particular, the ways in which poverty means they are unable to fit in and join in. Research such as this brings home how relative poverty hurts and how destructive it is of a decent childhood. And in an overview of research into children's perspectives on poverty, Tess and Peter Saunders argue that the development of research, which presents experiences and opinions and concerns of children themselves, has an important role to play in ensuring that policies targeted at children in poverty are meaningful and appropriate for addressing the life worlds of the children they are intending to support. Without this key subjective dimension, such policies may fail to deliver any significant or lasting change in children's circumstances. Now, I think it's fair to say that government has got that message insofar as it does now recognise the need to listen to children themselves some of the time, thanks in part to Tess's research. But how far the messages from that research are reflected in policy is another matter. Indeed, the Office of the Children's Commissioner for England published a study of what children and young people themselves have to say about poverty just recently, because, as the Children's Commissioner put it, we felt that children and young people's voices were missing from the strategies aimed at eradicating child poverty in this country. And the growing body of research which attempts to listen to these voices is underpinned by a recognition of children's agency. In other words, that they are social actors who, to quote Jerry Redmond, often exercise creativity in coping with their situation and improving their own lives and those of their families, and are not simply passive objects of decisions made by their parents or professionals. And this is an example of a more general development in poverty research, to which I now want to turn, research which helps to capture the agency of people living in poverty. The question of agency and its relationship to structure lies at the heart of alternative explanations of poverty. Are the causes of poverty to be found in individual behaviour and attitudes, agency, or in the organisation of the economy and society, in particular the labour market but also the family and the social security system, together with social divisions of class, gender, race, disability and age, in other words structure. The present government sees the causes of poverty as behavioural and cultural, lying in families and communities, and what David Cameron described as wrong personal choices. This particular agency perspective contrasts with the kind of structural analysis developed by Peter Townsend and most other social scientists. Until fairly recently, this kind of structural analysis more or less ignored agency for fear of blaming the victim. But an important development in the conceptualisation of poverty has been to acknowledge the importance of the agency of people living in poverty in the sense of recognition of the ways in which they negotiate their lives just like anyone else does. People in poverty may be victims, but they are not helpless, passive victims. 
From the day-to-day -day struggle to get by, to attempts to get out of poverty, they are exercising agency. But in the context of severe structural constraints and few opportunities. And this is different from the perspective on agency, which attributes the causes of poverty to it. Two examples of how poverty research can help to illuminate this kind of agency are provided by qualitative longitudinal research and livelihoods research. Our understanding of poverty has been aided by what's called, often called poverty dynamics research using longitudinal data sets which track individuals over a number of years. We have a much better understanding now of the extent to which people move in and out of poverty and of patterns of long-term versus recurrent poverty. And this kind of research has been hailed as encouraging a perception of people in poverty as active agents in their own lives. However, most of this research up till now, or till recently, has been quantitative, providing an overall picture <clears throat> at the impersonal macro level. Invaluable as it is, it cannot provide insights into the ways in which these dynamics reflect the agency of the individuals involved, or the toll that the struggle to get out of poverty can take on them. So from the perspective of understanding agency and its relationship to structure, studies at the micro level are important in complementing longitudinal macro level poverty surveys. In particular, qualitative longitudinal research, which Bath has helped to pioneer, offers a valuable tool for analysing how people in poverty negotiate change over time. But, as Jane Miller points out, experience over time also involves living with what is, responding to relatively minor changes, or even avoiding change. In other words, getting by can trump trying to get out of poverty at times. She also argues that qualitative data can be more appropriate in exploring how and in what ways people manage and adapt or not over different durations of poverty. She herself of Tess Ridge has used qualitative longitudinal research to explore how lone mothers and also their children negotiate the everyday challenges of sustaining low-income employment over time. Now, this research was cited in a research note circulated by the Minister for Welfare Reform to peers taking part in Grand Committee scrutinising the Welfare Reform Bill after some discussion we had about the impact of maternal employment on children starting school. <clears throat> the note stated, and I quote, that UK evidence from in-depth interviews of children aged 8 to 14 years of working loan parents, i.e. the study that I'm talking about, showed they can be a good role model for their children. Now, I recalled having read some articles about this research and that the evidence was, as you might expect, rather more ambiguous than this note suggested. So I contacted Jane and Tess and they kindly sent me some material that confirmed this. So when we re returned to the issue at report stage uh, of the bill, in the context of an amendment that I had moved to postpone the requirement that lone parents should be required to register for work when their youngest child is aged under five, I pointed out that the research found that working lone parents did not always provide a good role model, and I quoted an article by Tess, in which she observes that encouraging lone mothers into unstable and insecure labour markets runs the risk of alienating children from the values of employment. 
For these children, work had held out the promise of something better, and that promise had not been kept. So they also experienced disappointment, and for some, an apparent loss of confidence in the value of work. <laughs> so we have here an example of how governments can cherry-pick uh, research to suit the policies they are espousing. And my advice to the minister was that the message of this research was more haste, less speed, if the government is to succeed in getting lone parents of younger children into the labour market on a sustainable basis. Unfortunately, it was after 10 o'clock at night uh, when we reached the amendment, so there was no one there, uh, but at least the point about the research was on the record and civil servants will have taken note. Another illuminating piece of longitudinal quality of research undertaken by the Centre for Regional Economic and Social Research at Sheffield Hallam University, on which I acted as an advisor, looked at the relationship between poverty and place in six low-income neighbourhoods over three years. It, too, illuminated the agency involved in surviving poverty. Joseph Roundtree Foundation published a report which set some of the key research findings against implicit and explicit assumptions about low-income neighbourhoods contained in government policies. Now, I'll draw attention to two interrelated points they make, one more general and the other with implications for various measures in the Welfare Reform Act. The first concerns the Broken Britain diagnosis, which suggested that particular neighbourhoods and localities facing hardship were distinct from mainstream values, were uniquely dysfunctional and should accept responsibility for their problems. A diagnosis, the authors point out, not that far from the previous Labour government. It has implications for the structure agency debate in explaining poverty. And they write, this diagnosis in framing welfare policy does not accord with some of the main findings of our research in the six case study neighbourhoods. The local economy and how this in turn was influenced by national and international economic pressures and policy remained the most important factor determining the trajectory of neighbourhoods and outcomes for their residents. Furthermore, they observed that there was no evidence from the research of distinct places of difference, dislocated from the world of so-called hard-working families and replete with broken families, poor parenting, lawlessness and dependency. Indeed, they said there was a strong affiliation to the virtues of hard work and self-reliance, responsibility and independence. The need to provide for the family and make a contribution to society uh, were prominent in many accounts people gave of meeting the challenges they faced. There was no evidence of an entirely different hierarchy of values and morality informing their experiences and perceptions. Indeed, residents were as critical uh, of the few they believed to be working the system as was any politician. The researchers also emphasised that the picture of the dysfunctional family looming large as the cause of poverty in the Broken Britain narrative was emphatically not supported by this research. In fact, I think there's also uh, ESRC has just produced some uh, findings about the relationship between poverty and social mobility, which is saying something very similar. Instead, they said strong and often reciprocal relationships with other family members emerged as a universal feature across all sick neighbourhoods, and family networks were crucial for the vast majority of participants. Family members often helped each other out with practical as well as emotional support. 
And among younger participants, particularly women, regular and intermittent help with childcare was an important form of support provided by family members. And in some cases, it was part of a complex tapestry of childcare that participants put together in order to be able to work. Grandparents played an important role also in caring for grandchildren. Overall, they said the sense of mutual obligation that often emerged as crises ebbed and flowed was a priceless asset for many people trying to make ends meet. Now, these family networks were part of wider social networks which were of great importance in helping people to get by and which contributed to what was often a strong emotional and social attachment to their neighbourhood. This meant that the benefits of a move to another area in pursuit of paid work or training would, for many people, and I quote, be outweighed by the costs of such a move, severing of social networks, a lost sense of belonging, and undermining of feelings of safety and security derived from living within the familiar, and loss of informal assistance that allows people to cope and can actually serve to render work a viable proposition. And the researchers observed that these factors tend to undermine rational actor models of enhanced economic position based upon increasing residential and labour market flexibility. This, they warn, is an important corrective to some of the assumptions in policy about how far residential mobility as a mechanism for linking populations to economic growth and realigning housing demand could be stimulated through specific measures and sanctions such as the housing benefit reforms. Not just housing benefit reforms, but the overall benefit cap, which I'm sure you've all read about in the media recently, are predicated on the assumption that it's desirable for low-income families claiming benefits to move to lower-cost housing areas. Yet this and earlier research makes clear how damaging this is likely to be to the social network that not only helps such families get by, but can also underpin their efforts to get out of poverty through paid work. Indeed, the researchers warn that if forthcoming social housing and housing benefit reforms oblige low-income households to relocate, this may most affect those with the strongest connections to their existing neighbourhood. Now, I cited this research in our last gasp of protest on the Welfare Reform Bill in the Lords. At the end of what is called parliamentary ping-pong, when amendments go back and forth between Lords and Commons, Lord Best, formerly of the Joseph Rowntree Foundation, did not try to push further a compromise amendment aimed at protecting certain groups from what has become known as the bedroom tax, um, which will penalise people on housing benefit with spare bedrooms, Instead, he tabled an amendment calling for an independent review of the impact, including its impact on families and on matters such as the incidence of poverty and homelessness. So I suggested that in the light of this research, the review should also include the impact on social support networks. The minister committed the government to research on the impact and undertook to include the impact on social support networks in that. So a very minor example of how research can be used to influence, if not the policy itself, at least the monitoring of that policy. 
Uh, recent journalistic evidence in The Guardian painted an alarming picture of how families hit by housing benefit cuts already implemented are struggling to stay in central London so as not to disrupt their children's education with knock-on implications for the schools as teachers do what they can to help. Moreover, as the researchers of the, the project I've been talking about point out, such policies threaten to destroy some of the building blocks of the big society. But all such evidence is trumped by ministers' belief that some people are simply getting too much benefit, thereby perpetuating a dependency culture. A research programme piloted by Oxfam and Church Action on Poverty, so an example again of where research can sometimes come from outside academic institutions. Uh, research has been doing since 2005 provides a new perspective on poverty which helps to combat the prevalent belief that living on benefit uh, turns recipients into passive dependents. And this is what's called the sustainable livelihoods approach, which has its origins in international development, and which attempts to involve local people in the development of the research itself. An example of more participatory approaches, which treat people in poverty as subjects, rather just the objects of research. Uh, the SLA is defined as an analytical model that seeks to build on the existing assets and strategies that people living in poverty use to support themselves and then to identify what needs to change in order for their livelihood to become more secure and sustainable. Thus its starting point is not deprivation but assets by which is meant the strengths and capabilities of people living in poverty. And we're not talking just about financial assets, but also human, physical, place-based, uh, and social assets. So from an SLA perspective, uh, benefit cuts which force people to move to a new area are destroying important place-based and social assets. The underlying assumption is that people experiencing poverty are in fact active agents who assess risk carefully and make rational decisions and choices about their lives in light of the external and internal constraints they face. They make these choices in the context of social and economic change and the vulnerability of their livelihoods to external shocks is a vital and often underappreciated aspect of their decision-making processes. The approach thus focuses on a, again on agency within the context of structural constraints. Perhaps worth, worth noting also here, picking up on the point made by the Sheffield Hallam uh, researchers, that rationality should not be interpreted simply as that associated with economic man. As Duncan and Edwards argued on the basis of earlier research on lone motherhood, people are also made, motivated by what they called gendered moral rationalities, which might accord equal weight to, for instance, care responsibilities. And these moral rationalities are more or less ignored in policymaking with its preoccupation with paid work as the answer to all problems. A recent report which reflects on the implications for the coalition government agenda of uh, the sustainable livelihoods research carried out so far makes a similar point to argue that welfare reform needs to be, and I quote, informed both by people's lives and motivations and by the context in which they live. Crucially, it argues, 
By looking beyond the financial elements of people's lives, the approach allows policymakers to understand how these factors may contribute to recurrent poverty. For example, a person may take a job that makes sense for them financially, but if it damages the social networks that they rely upon to fulfil their caring responsibilities, the job might become unsustainable. And the report emphasises the importance of the physical asset of a home as the linchpin of the many assets which make up a sustainable livelihood. Thus, not only do benefit and housing policies threaten social and place-based assets, as I've already mentioned, they also, the report argues, look very likely to undermine this crucial part of any livelihood strategy. Now, one policy change that does accord with this evidence uh, from this and other research is the integration of in-work and out-of-work support, um, financial support, under the new universal credit, which, if it works, and it is a big if because there's a big sort of IT um, risks here uh, with this um, uh, reform, but if it works, it should reduce the insecurity associated with a move from benefit into paid work. And that has been shown by research to be a very important factor in people deciding whether or not to make that move into work. But the abolition of the discretionary social fund will make it harder for people to cope with unexpected financial shocks, such as the breakdown of essential household equipment or health-related expenses, thereby undermining their attempts to build more sustainable livelihoods. And one finding which particularly struck me when I read the first uh, piece of research carried out in the UK from this perspective in uh, Thornaby on Tees was that libraries were the most valued public asset along uh, with Shaw Start Children's Centres. They are seen as, I quote, a safe, warm and unthreatening place to go at no cost, but equally they allow for access to the wider community through local newspapers, computers, a range of information and for very isolated people, some basic human contact. And this is, what I think, worth remembering in the debates around uh, cuts in library services. As well as its general emphasis on people in poverty as active agents in their lives, the report concludes that experience of SLA projects shows us that rather than being passive recipients of public services, people treat public services and welfare as only some among their various assets, which they combine and use to survive and progress. In other words, relying on these services and benefits does not of itself constitute passive dependency. And the general lesson drawn from the research is that it would be worthwhile to policymakers and service providers to use the livelihoods approach to engage more directly with people experiencing poverty on a systematic and regular basis, ensuring that policy is sensitive to the survival choices people often have to make. This is but the latest in a number of calls to policymakers to listen to what people in poverty themselves have to say and to recognise the expertise born of experience. One initiative in which I was involved was the Commission on Poverty, Participation and Power, half of whose members had direct experience of poverty. And I learned an enormous amount from my participation and it informed the conceptualization of poverty that I developed in my book uh, on the subject because it did really bring home to me the value of the expertise born of experience. 
One of the main messages we received on the Commission was that people experiencing poverty see consultation without commitment and phony participation without the power to bring about change as the ultimate disrespect. And although there's been growing emphasis on participatory approaches at local level, it's still very unusual in national anti-poverty policy making uh, and people in poverty are still a long way from achieving what one commentator described as voice with influence. Now, turning to the impact of more conventional evidence on policy, research evidence of the kind I've been reflecting on is, of course, only one influence on policymaking. However evidence-based, policymaking remains a political process. As such, it reflects political ideologies. This was brought out very clearly back in 2000 by David Blunkett when he was a minister in an ESRC lecture on the relationship between social sciences and government. And he pointed out that the work of neither researchers nor policymakers is value-free. Indeed, he candidly admitted that he may let, and I quote here, his prejudices override the legitimate empirically-based evidence Politicians have a tendency to believe research when it reinforces their own view. And this is what David Blunkett said. Conversely, where research findings go against the grain of government thinking and beliefs, they are not surprisingly less likely to fall on fertile policy ground. So I was struck during the course of the Welfare Reform Bill, Bill's passage through the House of Lords, that research-based evidence which pointed to the likely negative impact of various measures, had little purchase in the face of a strong ideological resolve to use Social Security to change behaviour. I've already mentioned the evidence how, in effect, forcing people to move to cheaper areas is likely to undermine a number of assets they use to sustain livelihoods, including through paid work. But it was also striking in relation to a number of measures with particular implications for women, such as the payment of the whole universal credit, including the money for children into one bank account, which I mentioned earlier, and the move from fortnightly to monthly payments of benefit, which we think, in the basis of research, is going to have a disastrous effect on um, family budgeting uh, with knock-on effects in terms of debt, um, turning to payday loans, money lenders, and so forth. Amendments which drew on research and which would not have cost money were rejected by the minister because the government was determined to make people budget in ways that supposedly equip them better for a future move into the labour market and supposedly make them act responsibly. And there was a strong sense that they should learn to budget like us. Similarly, ministers are impervious to the evidence about benefit levels in relation to minimum income standards. Minimum income standards represent, and I quote, the income that people need in order to reach a minimum socially acceptable standard of living in the UK today based on what members of the public think. They include not just food, clothes and shelter, but also what you need in order to have the opportunities and choices necessary to participate in society. Research by colleagues at Loughborough indicates that benefits for a couple or lone parent with one or two children uh, are under two-thirds of the minimum income standard, and for a single adult of working age, only two-fifths. But I suspect considerably more influential is a recent YouGov poll published in Prospect, 
which found that three quarters of the population agreed to the proposition that the government pays out too much in benefits, welfare levels overall should be reduced. And this is no doubt related to the answer to another question, which revealed that over two-thirds of the public believe that scroungers represent a significant minority, around half of or most welfare claimants. This very negative finding is perhaps not surprising, given that policy and much political and media debate are driven by an assumption that welfare dependency and intergenerational worklessness are widespread problems. This assumption tends to be backed up by anecdotal evidence. In the case of MPs, usually what they've been told on the doorsteps or in their constituency surgeries, leading to a kind of negative feedback loop. Yet the research I've cited in other studies, including into recurrent poverty, as people move in and out of an insecure labour market, uh, do not bear out this assumption. And as one blogger pointed out in a critique of John Humphrey's documentary last autumn, I don't know how many of you saw it, but it was a disgraceful piece of television in my view. Uh, and this documentary was based on the premise of a dependency culture. Uh, as this blogger pointed out, its existence is a theory which needs to be tested against the evidence, and the evidence doesn't support the theory. Likewise, uh, recent statistical analysis of official data by Lindsay Macmillan of Bristol University challenges what tends to be treated as a fact that there are a significant number of families in which no one has worked for generations. Even just looking at two generations, it found that contrary to some commentary on the subject, there are very few households where both generations have never worked. They found only 15,350 households, in, and, and many of those, the younger generation, have been out of education for less than a year, so it's much too early to come to any sort of conclusion. That's not to say that there's not a relationship between a father and son's employment position, and it just looked at fathers and sons. But this relationship is mediated by the strength of local labour markets. In other words, the implication that the weakness lies in the individuals rather than labour market conditions is challenged. So rather than finish with some firm conclusions to what was really a set of reflections, I'd like instead to put them in the wider context of inequality. An edited collection on inequality, poverty and wealth, uh, edited by Tess Ridge and Sharon Wright, begins with a famous line from R.H. Tawney uh, a century ago. What, and it's even more apposite today, I think. What thoughtful rich people call the problem of poverty, thoughtful poor people call with equal justice the problem of riches. The research microscope has always been focused more on those at the bottom than those at the top, not least because the latter can more easily block access and they have much more power. The imbalance of power between those who enjoy wealth and those who live in poverty is the context in which we have to understand why policy contends to continues to favour the former. And the wider the gap between rich and poor, the harder it is to maintain the threads of solidarity and citizenship which underpin a generous welfare state. Thanks in part to public resentment against the largesse enjoyed in recent years uh, by the city, despite its role in the financial crisis, 
And in part, thanks to the Occupy movement, inequality is now being problematized in political and media debate. However, I fear that this is not translating into greater sympathy for people living in poverty. Instead, it almost seems to be fueling resentment against them among those now famously known as the squeeze middle, who feel, I think, squeezed between the rich who they feel resentful of and the poor who they feel resentful of. And this creates a big challenge for all who are concerned about poverty, whether in parliament, academe, or civil society. Good research cannot on its own combat such attitudes, but it can help. And in this hostile climate, we need it more than ever. Thank you very much.